Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Thursday Morning Report. This was a project I did a few years back in partnership with Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, where I volunteered as an engineer, host, and producer. Enjoy this one-hour interview program that went out live over the radio on KZYX. If you like what you are hearing, you can check out my current podcast, The Shift with Doug McKenty, on your favorite podcast hosting site, or find out more on Facebook and YouTube at The Shift with Doug McKenty. I'm also on Twitter at McKenty. If you want to support the program, look up The Shift on Patreon, or find it on the web at www.theshiftnow.com and click on subscribe. Subscribers receive access to full-length feature episodes of The Shift, as well as the membership forum, where members can engage in discussions and participate in the evolution of the show. Stay tuned for this episode of the Thursday Morning Report from KZYX Radio in Mendocino County, California. Good morning and welcome to the Thursday Morning Report. This morning I'm joined with Director Kelly Harderson of Feathered Cocaine. Kelly, are you there? I'm the right here. Very good. Did I get your last name right? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, couldn't do it better myself. All right. Very good. Uh, well, let's just get started here. Um, do you want to tell us just a, a, a quick overview of Feathered Cocaine, what it's about? Yeah, uh, it's basically a film that uh, starts out as a portrait of a, of a falconer that uh, is fighting uh, international falcon smuggling, and uh, through his uh, conservation works, he... Uh, he receives information about uh, Osama bin Laden whereabouts, and that's back in 2005. So from there on, he starts on a personal odyssey to uh, convey this information to the U.S. government. That, um, and at the same time, the, uh, the government has a multi-million dollar bounty on uh, bin Laden's head. And uh, much to uh, the falconer's surprise, they don't want to know, and they uh, obstruct him or uh, treat him with silence. So it's uh, it's a journey into uh, nature conservation and geopolitics at its worst. Yeah, it's interesting. There's definitely two parts to the film. There's the, the Falcon aspect and then uh, the Middle East aspect and with the terrorism connection. Uh, so let's and, and, the, and the whole geopolitics uh, involvement in, in, in all of this. Right, absolutely. So let's start with the, the falconing aspect. And just uh, let's talk about uh, Alan for a little while. Which, so there were two different directors. Which part of the movie did you help to film? Well, uh, we, are, we are two that uh, direct this film and produce it. Me and my, uh, my uh, partner, Marino Asmussen. And he's based in Iceland, and I'm based in uh, New York since three years ago. Uh, basically, we uh, we do everything together. We uh, direct together, we edit together, write together, we produce together. So there's really not uh, uh, one part of the film that uh, one or the other makes. It's, it's okay. all a cooperation. So you... But, uh, Basically, we, we started out to do a film on the history of falconry because it's a fascinating subject. It's the uh, sport of kings. It's like a noble sport. And uh, the falcon has always been involved in uh, in geopolitics and it's been used as a, as a currency to facilitate uh, uh, trade between countries uh, throughout the ages. So we were going to do a thing about uh, like a historical film. 
But when we started to uh, do the research, we uh, we rather soon found out that uh, it's it's still a very political bird, um, especially when you uh, go to the Persian Gulf. The uh, Persian uh, Persian Gulf power elite they are absolutely obsessed with uh, hunting falcons, and that's where the uh, where the main market is for uh, both legal and illegal birds. So yeah, that's uh, that's how it all started, and then uh, one or two years into into the production, uh, we uh, received this information on uh, Alan 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 Perot, who's the main character of the film, and his work concerning uh, Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda. So from there on, we uh, we had to uh, well, I, I wouldn't call it a U-turn, but we had to adjust just the film to, uh, to the info we were uh, receiving. Right, I mean... Uh, was, it was, I'm sorry. Well, it was definitely some, some pretty uh, pretty interesting turn of events once you got Alan on board with the film. Uh, do you want to just yeah. kind of... Well, let's talk uh, just a little bit more about the Falcon in general and, and like you're talking about the geopolitical uh, situation. I mean, basically the upper classes around the world are into falconry, and they have been used a lot of times trading falcons back and forth, the best falcons for hunting, etc., amongst the upper classes. Uh, but it is in the Middle East that this is really uh, a big deal, and that's where most of the uh, most of the falcon trading today occurs. Is that correct? Yeah. The, um, uh, if you look at the history, the, uh, the royals in, uh, in Europe, they were pretty much into it. And uh, the uh, the clergy, also the European ch- clergy, they were uh, pre- pretty much involved in this. Interesting. But then uh, uh, a couple of hundred years ago, you know, with with uh, the uh, history uh, evolving and uh, new techniques coming to to you know, you they they have uh, firearms to to hunt with. So the uh, the focus of the Europeans. Uh, basically went into the new technology, the uh, the firearms, shotguns, and and, and so on. Mm-hmm. But in the Persian Gulf, uh, the interest, which uh, in my opinion, the the interest is so high that it's it's a borderline obsession with uh, with mo- most of the people who uh, who are in in power in the Persian Gulf, South East, the Emirates, everybody. So uh, it's it's a very interesting thing to to note how uh, you know when when the petrodollar start to flow, but, uh, uh, it's uh, an unlimited amount of money. You can satisfy your every whim, and you're, if you're into falcons, it doesn't matter if they are uh, legally protected or or if if you uh, you know because they. There's a lot of smuggling going on. So, falcons and eggs and chicks are stolen from uh, areas where they are supposed to be protected, and they're smuggled down to the Persian Gulf, where they uh, where they sell for uh, an insane amount of money. So it's it's the old uh, old truth about you know, if you have the money, you can sometimes place yourself above international laws. So that, it was very interesting to to see how how it really works and how it's all connected to uh, geopolitics because 
we were at a time we were thinking about that okay, we were doing a, a film on uh, history and uh, nature conservation. But then the uh, geopolitical aspect came uh, creeping in. And at one time we were thinking, okay, let's just skip the uh, nature conservation and, and the history and let's just go right into Bin Laden and the uh, geopolitics. Mm -hmm. But we felt that uh, in order to understand the obsession and in order to see the big picture, you have to have both. Right. And uh, that's a decision we, we don't regret today to, to include it both. Yeah, it's tempting to just kind of uh, skip right over to the terrorism thing, but the Falcon issue is such a big deal. And when you're listening to um, uh, Alan Perot talk about it, and he's so passionate about it, uh, then it is sort of like uh, you definitely want to give the Falcons their due as well. Can you? Can you? So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about Alan first. How did you get in touch with Alan in the first place, and and what kind of a guy was he once you started to get to know him a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So uh, <clears throat> basically. Uh, what happened was that uh, me and Marino, my partner, uh, we had, in 2004, late 2004, we had just finished uh, uh, a documentary on, on music, rock and roll music, mm. and uh, we didn't have anything lined up after that production, so we, we kind of plunged into what is called uh, within the film business post-cinema depression. Right. <laughs> you, you, you're like, you're suspended in midair. All the stress, all the uh, pressure from the production is it's, it's gone. And you, you get lost, you know, in, in your, you know, you, you, you're suspended in midair. You don't have a project, you don't have anything. So you go into uh, this... Uh, uh, downward spiral of depression after, after a film if you don't have anything like that. Mm -hmm. So we we spent a few months in uh, like uh, in darkness. But, uh, around Christmas time, I was uh, I was actually doing the dishes. That's that's when I get my best ideas. Mm -hmm. I uh, I remembered uh, stories that uh, a friend of ours he he told us about. Uh, uh, German Falcon smugglers coming up to Iceland in the in the seventies, and uh, he uh, his father he was his father was a biologist, and uh, when some smugglers left uh, a sports bag full of eggs and chicks in the international airport in uh, in Iceland, because they were afraid they were getting caught by by customs, so they left it behind in the in the uh, in the restroom. His father was uh, given the Falcons to uh, re for for rehab, and he uh, asked his son to uh, make birds out of out of the chicks. And he this this friend of ours was actually the composer for the film. He uh, told us those amazing stories, and I thought, well, this might be a, like a cute little twenty minute documentary just to uh, do something. And then then we started to do research. And uh, the, the subject at hand, the uh, the falconry thing, the history, the smuggling, everything, it was it was just so fascinating that, that the film uh, kept getting bigger and bigger. And uh, all of a sudden, it was like a international spy novel. You had threads uh, and connections going around the globe, to Asia, to the Persian Gulf, U.S., Europe, wherever. Because... Uh, when you have uh, a lot of money involved in a in a commodity, sought after, 
the uh, the smugglers and the thieves they you know they they go go to any length to uh, to procure a, a falcon for to sell. So uh, we started to write a script that was uh, you know showing every aspect of this. And pretty soon we found found this guy in a research that uh, had been uh, opposing the smuggling in in Central Asia. And that was Alan Perot. And uh, at that time, you couldn't find any pictures of him on the internet. That you could read about him, what he what he had been doing in Mongolia, you know, opposing the uh, the uh, government in in court for uh, smuggling. The Minister of uh, Environment had been involved in a court case uh, with uh, falcon smuggling, and Alan was uh, he was very. Uh, yeah, he was uh, opposing fiercely what was going on. So we uh, tried to find him, and we, uh, I think for six months, we uh, we left messages all around wherever we thought he might be. Oh, wow, he was hard and to get in touch with, huh? Absolutely. He was, he was like a ghost. Right. He knew he was there. He couldn't, we didn't know how he looked like. And we wanted to get hold of him, but uh, he, he was unreachable. So after six months, he finally called back, and... Uh, we decided to uh, come over and meet him, and from from the first first moment we met him, it was uh, I think I think that's what's called point of no return. Yeah, you knew you had your guy. Uh, yeah, very uh, you know charismatic guy and uh, very picturesque, tall guy, big gray beard. Wearing a turban and a, a mid Middle East dress with a falcon on his hand, it's like uh, it's like you, you you walked into a, a film. Yeah, it was unreal. And uh, you know he, he had lots of info and uh, very uh, very passionate about what he's doing. So we knew we had our guy, and uh, from then on it, it evolved into. Uh, portrait of his life and his fight against the uh, on still ongoing smuggling. So let's just talk about his history a little bit because this is how he gets into it. He is just a, uh, into falcons from a very young age, gets into falconing, and then uh, decides he wants to go to Iran, I think when he was 18. Yep. Uh, yep. And he, he finds himself working for the Shah of Iran. This is how he gets into it. Can you describe that whole process a little bit just to give us his history a little bit more? Yeah. So, um, we found that uh, if you, you know, when the, the falconers we met, they are all, uh, well, they're all very much into falconry. They're very much into falcons. And uh, to, uh, you know, what, what you would call a normal person, this looks like, uh, you know, obsessive behavior or uh, at least, Extremely passionate behavior, and Alan was a, was that kind. He from from an early age he was uh, obsessed with falcons. He was uh, consumed by falcons. So he he had always he he's like I think it's called uh, a birdman. He uh, he has some way of communicating with birds, and he he's always had some birds: parakeets, hawks, kestrels, owls, falcons. And uh, in his, uh, when he was in prep school, he had 
Falcons and owls living in his uh, bedroom, coming and going. That's you know, no cage. They just they just lived with him. Yeah, I mean, you see the pictures, and he's got he's like, oh, the birds like to hang out on the you know all over the house. <laughs> he's, he's yeah, saying, it's just, it's it's uh, you you don't often meet people who uh, have this. Uh, it's, it's like a beautiful connection with uh, like a, another species. You can I, I can understand you have, have this connection with uh, another human being, but uh, to have this connection with uh, another species, to have the birds or or be it dogs or or, or horses or whatever, it, it, there is something beautiful about it. That uh, when when a person connects uh, to something that uh, most people just consider be like nice pets or, or nice animals, but he has this uh, unbelievable connection with the bird. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he uh, he uh, knew what he wanted, so at the age of 18, he, uh, he was absolutely set on uh, going to Iran, and he wanted to work for the Shah to be a, to be a falconer. So he, uh, what he did was he, uh, in, in secrecy, he obtained a passport, and uh, told his parents he was going to. Uh, I think it was go. He, he told them he was going west, the to the west coast. But mm-hmm. uh, basically, he he just went to Boston and bought a one-way ticket to Iran and uh, managed to uh, land a job at the uh, falconry center of the uh, Iranian Shah and uh, stayed there for a while and. They, they didn't know where he was. He didn't call him for months. and uh, They thought he had been uh, kidnapped or, or disappeared when he, when he finally called back from Iran. So, you see, he's a, he's a headstrong guy. He, he knows what he wants, and he, yeah. he goes all the way. And that, that's a very fascinating thing for a filmmaker to uh, meet that guy who uh, he's, uh, he's not... He's not like you know, he's not like Joe the plumber. He's uh, he's he's absolutely one of a kind. And uh, to a filmmaker, that's uh, a very valuable thing to to have in uh, in, in in your hero, right? Because uh, as the normal people, we go to the movies to to see the uh, you know to see the heroes, to see the uh, extraordinary people. So that was very valuable. And well, Alan, from from then on, he. Uh, he uh, was going back and forth from uh, the Middle East and, and the States, and uh, after a while he uh, landed a job for uh, the uh, president of the United Arab Emirates, Sheikh Said. And uh, he was uh, his personal functioner for a while. He worked for the uh, uh, royals of Saudi Arabia. He was working for the Saudi king, for the Saudi princess. And uh, uh, that was basically because he had access to, uh, legal access, by the way, to the uh, biggest falcons in the world. He had pure falcons, and he was uh, he managed to make a deal with uh, the authorities in, uh, in the Northwest Territories <coughs> to export the pure falcons to the uh, cent- Central East. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, that was like a... His golden key to everybody, because everybody wanted the biggest falcons in the world, and he was the uh, one of the few people who uh, managed to, to get 
get like legal birds there because there has always been uh, illegal birds smuggling from uh, Canada, from uh, Siberia, from Iceland, from Greenland, and the the um, all around the Arctic Circle because those are Arctic birds. But they uh, they don't uh, they don't do well in uh, in the desert. They uh, they die die of uh, heat strokes and uh, and their, their body just uh, don't function very well there. Right. So that's that's the whole uh, tragical aspect of this that you you have this bird, majestic, gorgeous looking bird, that are being smuggled from the Arctic Circle down to uh, to the desert. Where it's being used for hunting, and if you don't keep it in a in a aircon vehicle or an aircon house, it dies in a few weeks, and they're paying like hundreds of thousands or or even more than a million dollar for a right bird at the right time. So the the amount. That are in, in, involved with the smuggling are astronomical, right? And uh, and the uh, the pressure that's going on in in Central Asia it has uh, wiped out uh, local falcon, falcon populations. So it's a it's an issue. It's a nature conservation issue, and uh, in my mind, it's quite a big one. Because uh, if it goes on like this, the uh, uh, it, it's gonna it's gonna come to an end. All right, Kelly. Uh, let me let me just take a moment to yeah. do a station break for those of you who are just joining us here on KZYX. I'm speaking with Kelly uh, Harderson. Uh, one of the directors of Feathered Cocaine, which will be showcased here at the Mendocino Film Festival coming up in uh, a week and a half on the weekend of June 4th and 5th. Um, we're talking about uh, falcon smuggling, and, uh, and then we'll get into a little bit into uh, a little bit of the world of uh, international intrigue that comes up uh, as falcon, uh, falconeering is so popular in the Middle East. We're right now we're still on the issue of uh, just the environmental damage. Part of the film is dedicated to showing how just how much the falcon smuggling is uh, devastating uh, the falcon populations around the world. These jeer falcons that you're talking about, that was one of the most interesting things. I think one of the reasons why Alan uh, is so passionate about trying to stop the smuggling now is because he he did in a way back in the 80s he kind of turned on a lot of these Middle East the very wealthy elite class in the Middle East to these jeer falcons that are Arctic falcons but they're the biggest and the fastest falcons in the world so very popular amongst that class and so they'll buy one of these falcons uh, just to hunt with it for a few weeks before it perishes from the heat um, kind of a, a real tragedy uh, there, but there's also. Uh, can you just describe a little bit more about uh, some of the other uh, the the population decimations of the falcons that are happening really all over the world right now? Uh, I was kind of surprised to see that, and then a little bit about too. One of the most interesting aspects was uh, the the genetic, because what they're doing is they're taking falcons from all over the all over the world, and then they're breeding them together. So you're getting different kinds of falcons now. Uh, kind of a genetic mutation is happening that's unnatural. Yep. You know, I have a I have so, a phone call coming in really quick, Kelly. Let me take this because I think it's a, a lady from the film festival. Just a second. Okay. Uh, good morning. You're on KZYX. Oh, you got the wrong guy. Uh, this is Robert from out west. Oh, Netflix. yeah. Hey, Robert. I'm uh, very uh, intrigued by the show. It's a wonderful subject, and uh, and uh, thank you very much, uh, Kelly. Uh, 
uh, uh, just uh, some observations is that these birds are just like us at the top of the food chain, and uh, they've been used to get food back to medieval times, and uh, they're easily tamed, but they're always wild, and they're a beautiful legacy in a way, but uh, if we're overusing them and, or, or you know, making it so that we, we can't have them anymore, that, that's horrible. Um, right. Do you have a question real quick? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have a friend uh, up in Montague who has a, a hawk, and uh, he's trying to decide whether to let it go or not, and, and, the, and the darn thing won't go because it belongs to him, you know. <laughs> he, he belongs to it or something. And the question is uh, what to do, you know, because he's buying rabbits and turning them loose for the thing to, to catch. Um, the question is, uh, is there a way to reintroduce them to nature after they've uh, become humanized? All right, Robert, let's see if uh, uh, Kelly will be able to uh, answer I that question. I hope that the, the question is clear. I, I'm, I'm worried yeah. about the hawk. It's a beautiful creature. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for the call. Bye. Uh, Any idea? I, I, <laughs> I, I, I didn't quite uh, hear what, what the gentleman was saying. Oh, he wanted to know, this would probably be a good question for Alan if we had him on, but uh, if it's possible to release, once you've trained a bird and it's, and it's, um, you know, it's your bird, is it possible to release them back into the wild, or, or, you, or have you created a connection there then that they're going to want to stay with you for the rest of their life? Well... I'm not a falconer, and I'm not an ornithologist. As far as I understand, uh, a lot of what has to do with the the bird staying with you is that you keep feeding it constantly. So you're a food source. So as far as I understand, and this is just my understanding, uh, if you if you do it in a right way, you can you can uh, reintroduce it back into nature. And eventually, if it's a fit bird, it it will kill for kill its its uh, you know kill its food and and be fine. Well, but I'm I'm not a falconer. I'm a, I'm a filmmaker. So right. <laughs> this is maybe a better question question for professionals. <laughs> All right, well, let's get back real quick to the, the environmental damage then, uh, just talking yeah. about what's been going on to the falcon populations around the world and, and this genetic uh, recombining of different kinds of falcons that hasn't happened in the past before, how that's affecting yeah. falcon populations. Yeah, so this, this is a two, two, uh, twofold question. Uh, first, the, uh, the smuggling and the, uh, the stealing of the birds. Uh, in... Uh, Around, uh, around 1991, when the uh, Soviet Union fell apart, the, uh, the borders of the uh, USSR opened. And previously it was uh, more like a closed-off country. It, it, uh, it wasn't that easy to, to get in, and you were closely watched if you, if you went in. Then the, uh, the uh, Soviet Union caused bankrupt, and... Uh, Basically, if you had the money and you had the access, you could do whatever, like the uh, oligarchies did. You know, they had, had, had access to money, they had access to politicians, and they became multi-billionaires. So if you were interested in uh, falcons and you had the money, you could just walk in and you could take them out. 
just right your way through the officials. And uh, what happened in uh, in the Persian Gulf that the estimation of uh, falcons in captivity were about around 3,000 falcons every year. And what happened around 1991, that it went up to 14,000 falcons in a extremely short time. Wow. So basically what happened was that in uh, in the state of uh, Kazakhstan, which is about the size of Europe, uh, estimation is that there were uh, around 15,000 birds, and uh, in 12 years it went down to uh, optimists say 400, but the more likely number is 200. And the number doesn't say at all because out of the 200, nine out of every 10 is a male. So you had maybe 20 females left in a country, huh. like, like uh, female falcons or sea falcons, left in a country uh, about the size of Europe. And, uh, because the, uh, the market wants females as a hunting birds because they are bigger. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, so you had a, a, like 95% or more of the birds were stolen, and uh, a little less in the neighboring countries. But still, uh, the majority of birds were gone. They had been stolen. And um, so you have some uh, conservation groups fighting against this, and uh, some of them are doing good work. Some of them are... are are, uh, you know, some, some say they are fraught for something else. But um, what is inter interesting to note is that uh, the smuggling is uh, absolutely ongoing, and every year from the uh, Kamchatka Peninsula and Siberia, there, there are uh, smugglers caught with uh, up to 130 birds per shipment. And uh, they have been known to rent Russian military uh, airfields to uh, evade customs and to evade the police. So they pay off the military, get the use of the uh, military airfield for a while, load up the birds, and uh, usually they go to Syria where they are laundered, and then they go off to the Emirates or Saudi. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, uh, it's an ongoing issue. The, the smuggling, and uh, in some cases, in, in some places, uh, the population is fine because you have a strict law and uh, law enforcement, like where I come from, the uh, in Iceland, the wild falcon, falcon population is doing good, and uh, you have uh, enforcement and you have strict laws, and uh, in other places it's doing not not so well. Right. And then you have the uh, uh, the hybrid aspect. Right, so the interbreeding. Was, yeah, talking about uh, before, that uh, like in the case of the uh, Arctic falcons, the uh, jerk falcons, they are uh, brought down to, uh, to the desert. And basically, I, I would uh, compare it to uh, taking a polar bear and uh, put it in the Arizona desert. It, it desert. It uh, desert. Sorry. Yeah. It uh, it just it doesn't work. 
So they they die from heat stroke. They die from uh, diseases that they they have. Uh, they 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 can't fight because they, they don't know these diseases. So what what happened was that the falconers who were uh, uh, selling falcons as a business, they managed to uh, find a way to uh, art, uh, artificially inseminate. Uh, like like interbreed different species that would mm -hmm. never ever mix in nature. So they they have been doing all sorts of uh, well I would call it Frankensteinian experiments. They take the smallest falcon available and uh, uh, breed it with uh, the biggest falcon available just to see what happens. And uh, this is something that would never happen in nature. And uh, what happens is that uh, sometimes you get like disease-resistant birds, uh, very strong birds. They they are huge. They are strong. They are fast flying. They are disease-resistant, and they are uh, you know they they can bring down a gazelle. Oh wow! They can, they, no, yeah, the huh. power. That those man-made birds have is unbelievable, and the bad thing is that you have um, uh, the uh, power elite, the uh, the, uh, the governments, the uh, yeah, the, the person called power elite. They are above the law, so like in the Emirates, they are encouraging the uh, the common people to uh, use hybrids because they are, uh, you know, disease-resistant, they are better and stronger and so on and so forth. But they themselves are using uh, pure, pure falcons, mm -hmm. wild falcons, smuggled falcons. So it's a, it's a double moral going on there. And... Uh, we had when we went to the Emirates, and people were talking to us. They said one thing off camera and one thing on camera, and said, "You know, I'm sorry, I said this to you before, but if you're filming me, I will never ever repeat this." Wow, that's that. This is what they're saying. So there's a double standard going on. And yeah. uh, George uh, George W. Bush, uh, in his uh, I think it was in his last year as a as the president, he. Uh, uh, took like a trip to the Emirates on Saudi, and uh, if you go on the White House webpage, there's a there's a woman who uh, was in the entourage, and uh, she is describing when they went to uh, a falconry hunting camp, and she is talking about uh, you know the the, the love the Arab show for the birds and how magnificent it is and so on and so forth. And then she says that one of the sheikhs told her that uh, the beauty of this all is that after the hunting season, they release them. So, and that's where I, I, I started to be very interested because if they would use hybrids, as they are saying to the common people, use hybrids, if they would do it themselves, they would be releasing uh, hybrids into the nature mm. who were made with uh, local birds and they are uh, destroying the local gene pool which has taken nature thousands of years to, to, to build up. And if they are releasing 
pure pure bird, wild birds. That means they are buying smuggled birds. So it's a it's a kind of a crazy thing when you when you get into it. And uh, basically, what I would like to see is that you know, I'm I'm not against falconry, but I'm against uh, abuse of uh, nature and its resources. What I would like to see is that you know you could uh, do falconry. You could uh, hunt the falcons, but you could do it with uh, local birds, local species. So you can't, can't uh, take Arctic birds to the, uh, to the uh, Central East. All right, well, we're looking at about 9.40 here. Uh, for those of you who are just joining us here on KZYX, uh, this is the Thursday Morning Report. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. I'm speaking with film director Kelly Harderson of Feathered Cocaine. Uh, Feathered Cocaine will be showcased at the Mendocino Film Festival coming up here June 4th and 5th in about a week and a half uh, in the village of Mendocino. So we've got about 20 minutes left in the program. Let's try to get on to... Um, the terrorism connection here. We've got uh, one of the, one of the more interesting parts. Uh, well, the whole documentary was really interesting. But when you got into the idea of the the Middle Eastern uh, zakak and the majlis, and you described how they have these uh, these big meetings, essentially, and this was something that I just had no idea about. Where a lot of this kind of uh, underground business goes on, and it's all surrounded by the whole falcon industry here. So, I'll just give the the um, definitions here real quick and then you can go ahead and discuss exactly what goes on but the zakak is a uh, an obligatory giving uh, from the wealthy to the poor in uh, Islam and Muslim cultures so they need to give money out to the people and the majlis is a, is a political gathering where uh, people get together and uh, and they have these political meetings where uh, then a lot of this money will get moved around uh, it's sort of a place where uh, money laundering can take place. Actually, what actually goes down, and, and a lot of you talk about weapon smuggling, and of course, uh, funding terrorism and things like that. And uh, and all of this is surrounded. They'll usually do a falcon hunt then, uh, and they'll all get together and do this. So, do you want to describe uh, that part of the pro uh, that part of the documentary to us? Yeah. Um, so uh, the root of all this is uh, basically oil, petrol, gas. When, uh, when there's so much uh, petrol dollars coming in, and you have to give, you know, you, you're, uh, you're one of the uh, world richest men, and your fortune is based on oil, and your uh, religion mandates that you give away a certain amount of your wealth, the, uh, a small percentage of, of your wealth is such a, a big amount that you can do whatever with it. You can you can uh, you can give it to uh, the poor. You can give it to help uh, a cause you think uh, will help you and the people. So, uh, what the Saudis do, for example, they uh, they fund the. Uh, the mattresses, the, uh, the schools where, where uh, fundamental Islam is, is taught. So a lot of the uh, mattresses and, and uh, a lot of the uh, uh, suicide bombers, they come from the mattresses, is actually paid for because of this religious mandate. And so they are advancing uh, the teachings of Islam, that it's the, uh, 
it's very fundamental, and uh, it's a fact that that's where a lot of these suicide bombers come from. So uh, we took a look into this, and uh, we got confirmation from uh, Bob Bear, the uh, former CIA agent, who, uh, if people have seen a film called Syriana, where just just Clooney played the CIA agent operating in the Central East. That's based on Bob Bear's. Oh wow! Uh, and uh, he said, yes, this is absolutely correct. This is where the business is done. It's done in the falconry camps where they fly into the desert. They uh, erect a tented city with a thousand people, servants. Uh, it's like a little city. And uh, there people meet, they hunt, because this is the... Uh, one of the biggest uh, cultural issues in the Arab world is actually go falconry hunting. So you hunt, you have fun, and you take care of business. It's like uh, a deal where everything is included. So if you want to fund the Afghan resistance, that's where you do it. If you want to pay off the Pakistani army, that's where you do it. And uh, Osama bin Laden, he was a frequent guest of both the Saudis and the Emirates before uh, 9-11. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bob Bear says, on camera, it's on the record, the CIA knew about this, they had uh, overhead viewing, they had confirmation that the uh, money for 9-11 did not come from bin Laden's pocket, it did not come from the Taliban's, it, the uh, 9-11 operation was funded through the falconry hunting camps of the Emirates and the Saudis. And uh, he says, basically, because in, in, in the 9-11 Commission report, they state that uh, there's no record of uh, money being funneled uh, uh, to Al-Qaeda. Well, of course not, because right. they know, they're not stupid, they know that you can trace bank records. So what happens in those falconry hunting camps is that the uh, airplanes fly in with uh, cars, they fly in with tents, with uh, provisions, and they fly in with uh, cases full of cash. So you show up, you take the money, you drive away in a car, there's no record, absolutely nothing. But this is being confirmed by a former CIA agent in the, in the film. So uh, I believe him. And uh, so Bin Laden, he, uh, he used to frequent those camps a lot. And he's an, he's an avid falconer. And from what we have gathered is that when he was living in uh, Kandahar in Afghanistan, the locals, they really disliked him because uh, he and his people, they um, went to the mountains and they took all the falcons. So another aspect of the falconry smuggling is that Al-Qaeda took the falcons of Kandahar, they take them to the falconry camps, and they give them as priceless gifts to the uh, money people, the sheikhs, the U.S. allies, by the way, and uh, what they get in return is cars, cash, and weapons. So I think that's a pretty interesting story of uh, how Al-Qaeda actually got their funding for 9-11 and and other operations. And this is something that um, is not talked about a lot in the States. No, not at all. Um, And it was actually through the... uh, Falconry connection that uh, and, and the nature conservation uh, fighting the smuggling that we got a hint of uh, where Bin Laden 
was living. Because uh, Alan Perono has a network of uh, people who are, uh, you know, informants or uh, they want to fight this uh, decimation of the Falcons. So one of his uh, associates got, uh, got in contact with him and uh, he learned that uh, this guy who was a smuggler, he uh, smuggled from Russia through Iran. He was... Uh, at a certain location in Iran when he met a hunting party of uh, five people and they decided to greet the hunters and the main guy, lo and behold, Osama bin Laden with his falcons and four bodyguards. Yeah, this is just the most fascinating part of the, of the whole documentary. It really is mind-blowing and you got a chance to interview this guy. Yeah, we, we met up with this guy in, uh, in, uh, on the Afghanistan border and uh, I believe we straight into Afghanistan without knowing it. That, uh, that's, that's the way the borders are. There is no border. Mm-hmm. A, a border is a concept that's uh, on a map. But over there, it's just you You are in the field. So we met him, and uh, after uh, a long security discussion, decided to uh, agree to the interview, not because he wanted to be interviewed, but because he owed uh, our head bodyguard his life. Our huh. bodyguard had saved his life, and uh, to even out that, wow. okay, I'll do this, but I'm not happy about it. So he did it under, uh, uh, I don't know what the word. Under duress. He, he, and yeah, he, he wasn't happy about it. Right. And uh, so we decided to meet him two weeks later in a different country. Because, you know, we had to meet in a neighboring country because he was uh, upset about maybe we were being followed and, and so on and so forth. Uh-huh. It's, a, it's like the Afghani warlord. He has his own uh, army of a few hundred men that uh, sit around and wait for his orders to what to do, to strike, to smuggle. And uh, the women do most of the work. And it it, it was a, a winter into a culture that you you never get a chance to see. Right, that's those. that's outrageous. And this yeah. guy is telling and, you that he had seen Bin Laden in Iran, and this was in two thousand four, two thousand five. Yeah, and then he uh, because he's he's using the same route to to do his uh, contraband thing. He met him at least once a year, sometimes two times for a few years. And the uh, the way they do the hunting is that you have those precious birds, you uh, release them to, to kill the prey, and if the bird goes astray, it's a, it's a huge loss. So you have a backpack transmitter that transmits a frequency, so you can actually track the bird if it goes astray. So what the smuggler did was he uh, wrote down the frequencies. And Alan offered the frequencies to the uh, CIA, to the NSA, to the FBI, to everybody. Right, I mean, this is uh, crazy because then they could have followed the birds and they could have found Bin Laden. Yeah, exactly. You could pinpoint Bin Laden in the field without any uh, chance of collateral damage. Just Bin Laden, the birds, and four bodyguards. Right. 
Um, and interestingly, well, just as an aside, earlier in the documentary, before you get to this part, you talk about how the CIA did know that bin Laden was at one of these hunting camps. I think it was in 1999, and they could have taken him out yeah. then, but the, the, one of the, the leaders of, of the government of Bahrain was there. No, it was the Emirates. Uh, one of the, uh, the uh, I think it was the, um, what they called in the state, the, the foreign minister uh -huh. of, of the Emirates, he was there. So they were afraid, okay, if, if they would take up in Latin, they had, they had him in the, uh, what do you call it, in the, in the crosshairs. Right. Uh, they were afraid of the, uh, you know, if they would take up in Latin, they would kill the foreign minister of the Emirates, and the Emirates uh, were uh, supposedly... Uh, They're our uh, allies, so we couldn't do it. Yeah, so it's like the Emirates were playing both sides, still are, the one the Southeast. Mm -hmm. and, um, but there, there was no chance of collateral damage. So Alan tried to do this, tried to convey this information to the administration. And by the way, not only to the Bush administration, also to the Obama administration, and they behaved exactly the same. Huh. So uh, at one point, his lawyers were told to shut up, and go away, and don't breathe a word about it, because they know. They said it was like a, like a trade secret, and if, because Adam was planning uh, planning to actually go to Iran and uh, do his uh, duty as a, as a civilian, to, uh, because he had access to, to this whole thing, to go and get him. And uh, they said, if you, if you go there, and if you try to get him, we will lead your presence to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard and they will come, and they will pick you up, and they will do our dirty work for us. And this is from the mouth of CIA. So I'm, I'm like, this whole geopolitical thing, and, and this, this whole thing about uh, the, the killing of Bin Laden, uh, I have my thoughts about the official version. Right. Yeah, I imagine so. It sounded like you got uh, a lot of alternate information there. Yeah, uh, and... and, and uh, because of the uh, Bin Laden kill in the beginning of May, uh, I've been going going over the film and uh, see if, if we need to update it or what to do, because it's like right. a, a whole new aspect of this whole story, that, that Bin Laden is, is now his dad. And uh, I've been going through reports on Bin Laden's whereabouts from officials, from the administration, from journalists, uh, from from every source I can I can find, and I I'm, I've concluded that this film is basically the only document that can shed light on the lost years. It was lost for a decade, right? The lost years of Bin Laden, because all the other reports, both from the CIA and everybody, it's uh, they are contradicting themselves. And here we have a. I, who actually appears in the film, saying what happened, and uh, like he's saying, he has, a, he has four bodyguards, exactly uh, the way it was in Abbottabad. He was not surrounded by an army, there were a few bodyguards, and uh, his health, he talks about his health in the film, yeah. he says he looks absolutely fine, no matter what the press says. Uh, because uh, there was a lot of reports that he had died of... Uh, uh, kidney uh, kidney failure, and he says this man is as healthy healthy as you and I. Huh. So it's like a all those 
the, the official story. It's very contradictionary. All right. It's, it's contradictory itself. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very curious to see what happens next in the, in the epilogue of the Bin Laden film. But Salad Cocaine is, I would say, it's the definite film on the, uh, on the lost years of Bin Laden. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of uh, interesting issues uh, concerning nature conservation and geopolitics as well. All right, Kelly, I think we've only got a few minutes left in the program. I do believe I have. Laviva, are you there? Yes, I am here. <laughs> Very good. Thanks for your patience there. <laughs> I, she's, been, yes. she's been waiting and listening. It's a great okay. interview, and I just wanted to make sure that people know yeah. um, that they can come see the film. Um, it's Feathered Cocaine, and you can go to the website to get all the information, MendocinoFilmFestival.org, and it is playing at the Matheson Performing Arts Center on June 3rd, Friday at 1230. And um, it is a smaller venue, so if you're interested in seeing the film, I do suggest that you get tickets ahead of time. Um, and you can go on to MendocinoFilmFestival.org to look for them or brown paper bag tickets. But, yeah, 12.30 Friday. All right. Very good, Laviva. Thanks for that info. All right. Take care. Okay, so we got the time out there, and uh, if you have, if you didn't quite get that, just remember to go on uh, Mendo Film Festival, uh, Mendo Festival dot org, and you'll be able to get the time and the place for the movie. Just uh, a few minutes left, Kelly. So, do you have uh, any words in conclusion, just to wrap up your whole experience with the film? Uh, well, it's been uh, it's been a very uh, uh, revelating experience you know i i think uh, the process of making this whole film and uh, taking date for uh, uh, material and corroboration uh, basically opened my eyes to how how business is conducted in the uh, context of uh, power and money and geopolitics and i think uh, you know, I, I I don't do conspiracies. I'm I'm not a con- conspiracy guy. But I think that uh, the general public very often gets a watered-down version of what is exactly going on. And uh, my only advice to people who who really want to find out is to dig deep and keep on digging. And if people have to call your names. I've been called a Zionist, a warmonger, a disciple of Rupert Murdoch in, in this whole whole, uh, wow. whole journey, and and lots of other ugly names that I, I think it's illegal to right. tell them on video. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm not gonna say what they call me. And uh, when this starts to happen, you you know you have touched a raw nerve. So where where most people backed off, we actually. All right, very good. Yeah, I'm afraid that's going to have to wrap it up. Just a few seconds left. So I want to uh, thank you so much for being on the program. And uh, I hope you have all the success that you can have uh, with the documentary. It was very informative for me. Uh, and I think thanks everyone so around here is going to enjoy it at the Mendo Film Festival. So thanks thank for being on the show. You got it. Thank you so much. Take care. Good day. Bye-bye. 
All right, everyone, that was Kelly Harderson, uh, director of Feathered Cocaine. It will be showcased at the Mendocino Film Festival coming up here uh, in a week and a half, uh, June uh, 4th and 5th. Uh, but the time is now 10 o'clock, so uh, that's going to be it for this morning's program. You've been listening to the Thursday Morning Report here on KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM Willits and Ukiah, 88.1 FM Fort Bragg. This is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio, streaming on the web at kzyx.org. Stay tuned in just a few moments for Jazz from the Wharf. Uh, thanks again, everyone, and I'll speak to you again in two weeks' time. Take care.